The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everyone. Glad that you could join us, and I'm really, really excited about our show topic and our show guest today because it couldn't be more relevant. I mean, you cannot turn on the news right now without hearing about the power failures, the gas shortages, and all sorts of energy-related problems going on as a result of Superstorm Sandy on the East Coast. And today, we're joined by Dr. Masood Amin, who is a senior member of IEEE, that stands for Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. And he's done a lot of work on, as we as laymen's know it, the smart grid, but so much more. Actually, in the aftermath of the tragic events of 9-11, he directed all the security-related research and development at the Electric Power Research Institute in Palo Alto, California, and that included infrastructure security initiative work and work on the enterprise information security. And he and I are going to be talking through some of the power outage situations that have been realized as a result of Superstorm Sandy, and we're going to be talking about something even more important, which is do we have to live this way? Is this the way it's always going to be when we have a situation, a disaster like this? Or are there things that we can be doing to our energy infrastructure to alleviate some of the problems that we've been witnessing on the news every night since the storm hit the East Coast? So welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Amin. I'm so glad to have you with us. Thank you very much. Pleased to be with you. Well, you know, since the storm hit the eastern seaboard of the U.S., we have seen all kinds of devastating pictures, uh, things that, you know, show us what the wind of the storm did and what the floodwaters of the storm did. But really, the central story and the most striking part of this disaster has been the loss of electricity, and not just for a few hours, but the sustained loss of electricity. And then, of course, some unbelievable stories of the failures of some of the backup systems. So let's begin at the beginning. How exactly did over 8 million people lose electricity so quickly? Was it because we lost the capacity to generate electricity as a result of the storm, or was it something else? Thank you, Ms. Buck, uh, for your on-target question. My hat is off to the first responders, to the crews from all over the country who have converged on the East Coast and are trying to restore and recover the system. However, the system itself has been operating with diminished shock absorbers uh, under stress and strain. The current North American electric power grid is an amazing marvel of engineering for the 20th century. And we need to bring it up to the 21st century standards to support our increasingly digital economy. To give you an idea, the existing system, from if you think of it as an end-to-end system from fuel source, 
high vo- uh, from generation, high voltage transmission, distribution, and end use is vulnerable to natural disasters, to intentional attacks, and adverse effects impacts on national security, adverse effects impact our economy, uh, loss of life, and lives of every citizen. For decades, the industry has worked very hard to secure and make the system operation more reliable. However, uh, the amount of uh, capacity, both generation and transmission, has been have been diminishing since the uh, 1980s, and we are really uh, extracting more and more out of the same existing infrastructure without investing in it. If we were farmers, it would be as if we are over harvesting the existing farm, and uh, we need to invest in it both in terms of making it stronger, making it smarter, and more secure. And in the process of that. It also means economic growth and job development because uh, uh, electricity underpins uh, GDP growth. And we will talk about that later on. But um, when we look at the whole system, every economic social function depends on reliable, secure operation of our power grid. And there are interdependencies with telecom, transportation, financial systems, and the quality of life that we have grown to enjoy and often take for granted. So coming back to your question, we can have a more uh, resilient and a stronger infrastructure. One can, we can never really build a system with zero failure. Uh, we can, but it's too costly to go in that level. But we can build systems that are more resilient, that the failures are localized. When a strong wind or tidal surge hits us, uh, there are some equipment, some lines, some transformers, uh, generators are going to be flooded. So some of the defense would rely on uh, design criteria. We use what kind of simple solutions, low-hanging fruit, if you will, uh, flood walls and protection we put around them. Others are more sophisticated. And uh, while we cannot guarantee that everything will stand up to the wrath of Mother Nature, but we can build a more resilient and smarter system. Mm-hmm. So while absolute protection will be either impossible or will be too costly, but what smart grid would do or what stronger and smarter grid would do would make the size of outages smaller. I've had the privilege of working in this area uh, in the last 15 years. First time I proposed smart self-healing grid was in January of 98, and EPRI, when I was at EPRI, and DOD with the Pentagon, we co-founded a large national initiative from 98 to 2001, exactly in this area that became the origin of smart grid technologies. And when we look at uh, the, the overall system, we can transform and make it a lot more resilient and stronger. So in summary, uh, some outages will happen However, we can localize that and enable a much more rapid restoration and reduce also the stress and strain on the citizens as well as on the first responders and the crews. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can bring it up to the 21st century standards to support our economy and quality of life. In order to do that, if we were going to create a system in which, you know, it's, it's a little bit less vulnerable, would that require... Uh, say, shorter transmission lines? Would it require more distributed generation? 
uh, would it require things like redundancy of, of, uh, distribution? Give us some ideas of how the system is configured now and how it might can be configured in order to be less vulnerable to these massive outages. Certainly. Uh, we need, we need both a stronger high voltage backbone for the grid. Currently in North America, we have 450,000 miles of high voltage line, 100,000 volts and higher. We need to increase that by about 9%, by about 42,000 miles. Cost of that is about $2 million per mile, uh, $82 billion. What it would enable, it would enable alternative pathways to bring electricity in, integrating renewable sources into the grid, mostly wind, some solar, even natural gas in areas that's available into the grid. That's the stronger backbone that we need to develop. Also, we need a smarter grid with with security built in. So this would be local microgrids that have their own local sources, whether small generators combined with building integrated, uh, combined heat and power, solar panels, local available resources in order to make them as self-sufficient and as efficient locally. So I am often asked, should we have a high-voltage power grid or go for a totally distributed generation, for example, with microgrid? That question sets a false choice. It's a false dichotomy because from a national security, infrastructure security, we need both. The choice in that question is should really be, it's not this or that, but it's and. Uh, from an overall system perspective, with the goal of increasing the resilience, increasing system efficiency, eco-friendly, and reliability, we need both microgrids that are as efficient with sensor overlay, sensors, communication, automation, what we call smart grid, this advanced IT and automation platform overlaying that as well as um, uh, that can island rapidly during emergencies. And we need a stronger and smarter high-voltage backbone to efficiently integrate intermittent renewable sources and storage combined with massive storage into the overall system. Mm-hmm. The total cost of that is about uh, $30 billion a year for 20 years. But the benefits of such a stronger and smarter system uh, far outweigh the cost. The benefits would mean currently we experience outages that impact our economy on a slow, in a slow year about $80 billion a year in economic losses. And that doesn't include infrastructure destruction all the way up to $180 billion a year. We can reduce that by about $49 billion a year in reduced outages. We can increase system efficiency by about 4.5%. That's another $20 billion in savings, 20.4. Also, it reduces uh, uh, carbon emissions by 12 to 18%. And we currently don't have pricing for carbon emissions that we could. But all in all, it would, re- it would the benefits of just reduced outages and increased efficiency amount to $70 billion per year. Wow. Now, does that take into account simply the energy demand of our current population, or does that uh, cost-benefit analysis take into account population growth and subsequent growth of demand for energy? 
an excellent question. Our, currently, uh, our electric de- electricity demand, even with the slow economy, is growing about 0.9% a year, mostly because of digital devices, video mm-hmm. streaming, and increased use of digital records and uh, reliance on uh, flat screen TVs and, and so on. So the load is growing also because of warmer summers, hotter summers for, uh, that we use cooling summertime in parts of the country that are, get hot. Uh, to keep up with that demand, we basically must do this. This is, a, uh, this, is a, uh, this is one of the ways, and we are not alone in this. China has put even more in smart grid technologies because of that, because the load in China is going to double by 2020, and they have shortfalls, especially in the high GDP growth on the eastern part of China. Mm-hmm. Similarly, Brazil, for an antiquated system that brings uh, mostly hydropower from uh, Amazon into the population centers, South Korea, so all, and even India, that has an average about 8% uh, shortfall, uh, they are all have been moving in the area of smart grid to and stronger grid to fuel their economy's prosperity. Besides the economic impact and, of course, the personal uh, impact that people are feeling right now as a result of loss of power in the you know the sandy area, what are some of the other implications of losing power, losing electricity across such a significant area of the U.S.? You mentioned maybe national security implications. Uh, What are some of the things that maybe we're not seeing on CNN right now that we should be thinking about when we talk about a massive power outage? You know, on the risk awareness and risk uh, reduction side, electricity underpins everything we use in our society, everything, interdependencies, between national infrastructure, such as oil and gas, pumping stations, water, um, uh, wastewater treatment, telecom, uh, cyber infrastructure, transportation, banking, finance, state and local emergency and other services, they all depend on electricity, on reliable electricity. So when we look at not just one part, but how does electricity its central role on every aspect of our society, and, and, it, and that's how it connects to the GDP and growth of our economy, quality of life, and in some cases, unfortunately, with the, with the adverse, continued adverse conditions, uh, the increased potential for loss of life. Mm-hmm. So it really underpins everything we do, but unfortunately, we take that and many other things for granted, we only notice infrastructure when it fails or it interferes with our wants and wishes. Well, that's well said and so true. We've got so much more to discuss. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll talk about some of the specific uh, pieces of, of human suffering that have been experienced through this power outage uh, due to Superstorm Sandy, and we'll be talking about how a smarter, more efficient grid could alleviate those types of situations in the future. So don't go away, folks. There's much more. Go Green Radio right after this. 
news, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Glad that you're all joining us. If you happen to just be tuning in, we're talking to Dr. Masood Amin, and he is a senior member of an organization near and dear to my heart, and that's IEEE. Um, they are the go-to organization for anything that you want to know about electronics and electrical engineering, everything from aerospace to computers and telecommunications, biomedical engineering. And of course, today we're talking about electric power. Uh, we've got some information on consumer electronics and how this is all factoring in. But our main topic today is about some of the infrastructure, energy infrastructure lessons that we should be learning based on what we're seeing in terms of this massive power outage that's been experienced on the eastern seaboard as a result of super Storm Sandy. You know, Dr. Amin, I'd like to talk about some of the things that people are enduring as a lack, a result of lack of electricity. That one of the things that was so striking is that people who were in two of the largest hospitals in New York City had to be evacuated. Um, the hospitals lost electricity, and even though they had backup generators, those generators failed. And from everything I've been able to read uh, about the, the situation, the generators 
were not in the basement. They were moved up to uh, the upper floors, but the fuel pumps and the fuel storage were down in the basement. And as the floodwaters came in, those systems were flooded, and so uh, they weren't able to get fuel up to the generators without a bucket patrol of uh, National Guardsmen. And so uh, the generators failed. Tell us, is there a more modern and maybe technologically advanced way that we could ensure that critical places like hospitals don't lose electricity in the first place or that they have more reliable backup power? Whenever we design a building or we think about integrated uh, design of any facility, uh, we, we need to look at uh, the risks that we are trying to uh, design the building to reduce and what the level of risk is. Unfortunately, I think some of the buildings in New York or areas affected, and earlier on uh, with Hurricane Katrina or Ivan or Camille back in the 60s, buildings were not designed at a level of risk management that required them to think about what to do about it if they are hit with this level of uh, water or flooding. Uh, As we look ahead, that's an important question, and that gets into the both electrical engineering as well as civil engineering combined with mechanical and risk management. Uh, what do we do? Where do we put? And these interdependencies, we may protect, if you will, the generator, but, but we don't necessarily think about long-term protection of the whole end-to-end system that keeps the lights on in a particular facility. Um, telecom industry, server farms have done a lot of work in that area, and they have typically uninterruptible power supply, UPS, which is a combination of uh, stacks of batteries, storage devices. Even some of them use the same car batteries that we often buy, but uh, stack after stack of them on shelves. They look like a book, uh, basically a bookstore, except on the shelves they have batteries. And that provides a few seconds, maybe 30 seconds, maybe longer, until the either diesel or gas-fired or, in some cases, fuel cell generators kick in. And that is usually good for 24 hours or even 48 hours. depends what level of investment goes into them. But that type of uninterruptible power supply combined with local generation often helps. And uh, as we design buildings or retrofit buildings, there have been a lot of discussion for at least since Katrina, even before that, to move a lot of these to the second, third floor, or even to the roof of the building, Mm -hmm. and uh, doing the kind of integrated risk management that it takes to avert all kinds of disruptions, not only Mother Nature, but potential um, disruptions due to intentional attacks. Mm -hmm. You know, in addition to the hospitals relying upon generators, I know that a lot of private citizens thought that that would work for them too. However, a lot of those private citizens had generators that run on gasoline. And as we all know, gasoline has become scarce and has become even rationed at this point. Help us understand how the electric power outages impacted the gasoline supply lines, because I don't know that that's been well explained in mainstream media. Certainly. These are all uh, part of what we call interdependencies between infrastructures, coupling between infrastructures. Pumping stations for gasoline depend on electricity. 
And whenever you have few lines, uh, all the way, if you will, at the pumping stations where we, uh, where we get our gas, all the way on the supply, uh, uh, supply chain that brings uh, fuel to where it is needed. In addition to that, uh, to give you a very practical example, this is not new. I had the privilege of working for, on projects for the U.S. Air Force, Air Mobility Command, Transportation Command, beginning in 85 to 97, for logistic networks, fuel supply, and uh, ability to actually keep the aircraft and land and sea vehicles moving critically depends on, of course, fuel. But that fuel also critically depends on electricity, uh, available electricity in areas, in bases, in ports that you need it. And disruption of that propagates almost like, a, think of it please, as a bowl of spaghetti with many different types of noodles in them. Some mm -hmm. noodles are your gas and oil and gas pipelines or gas pumps. Some other noodles are electric power networks. Some noodles are telecom and communication that are running through. And they all intertwined and they deliver. So it's not just gas or oil, but it's uh, underpinning infrastructure uh, based on reliable electricity that is needed to keep the system up and running. So even at the refineries, I'm assuming... You know, if they are going to be moving the gasoline, even if, uh, you know, the gas pumps, you know, aren't working, even at the refineries, I'm sure there's a need for electricity in order to keep refining uh, the oil into gasoline. And that could even be impacted as well, huh? Absolutely. If they're affected, then whenever refine, and also that's another area of our nation that we are at the near peak, we are not building any new refineries. And the refineries, many of them, when they're disrupted by any, for any reason, then we have spike in prices, typically, and shortages. And those are both for oil as well as for natural gas that we have experienced that, how volatile the prices can be because we are operating the system with diminished shock absorbers. Mm, that's so interesting. You know, I live in California, and we've seen horrific gas prices and um, I live no more than 20 miles from a refinery and a lot of people you know we just can't understand why we're paying so much more than folks who are uh, quite a bit farther away from refineries but that helps to explain a little bit more about that situation one of the things that kind of set me back about this whole uh, storm situation was what happened to the ability to communicate now a lot of people um, have decided to do away with landline telephones and everybody in their family has a cell phone and we kind of get the fact that you know if the power goes out and you can't keep your cell phone charged you're not going to be able to make a call but actually something else happened that i honestly had never considered before and that was even when people had the ability to keep their cell phones charged either because they didn't lose electricity at their home or because they had a generator at their home and they could keep that cell phone charged that the cell towers were losing energy and that they were being run some of them were being run on generators as well that relied on gasoline and when that gasoline supply ran out the cell cell towers uh, did not work. So clearly, without reliable electricity, our telecommunication system can't even last very long. How can we make that system less vulnerable? Precisely. 
we can do three things. One is we can make the devices more efficient and the system more efficient as part of that, so using less electricity. Second, we can put locally uh, either, uh, and also many of the cell towers or local, uh, close to them you will see small solar panels, but that's not enough power, enough electricity to power them. Uh, cell, cell sites actually and the network that they run requires reliable electricity all the time all the time, and especially at peak periods when there is a major emergency, those, those are the times that people are really trying to contact their loved ones or get the calls out. That's the period of peak demand. Just to give you a related example, on 9-11, I was less than a mile from Pentagon briefing the White House and, NS and other agencies on catastrophic failures of infrastructure on self-healing grid on that Tuesday morning. And uh, we couldn't get a call out. We tried very hard. I was calling St. Louis, calling California, and because the capacity for those peak was about 18% in the public switched network. And finally, I think it was around 1 o'clock that I managed to get a call out. Now imagine during uh, such emergencies or outages, uh, high demand, cell sites are being used a lot, and, and because they are not connected anymore, to the, to the transmission and distribution network. They are locally are using their backup generators. Those are only good for a few hours or at best for a couple of days. They're going to run out of electricity unless, as you mentioned, unless we have fuel supply and we can reconnect them uh, to the sources that they get electricity from. These are all examples, unfortunately, vivid examples of interdependencies between infrastructure and the criticality of electricity to power our economy and our lives. Mm -hmm. When we come back, we've got to take a quick commercial break. We're going to talk about the impact of the loss of electricity on the financial sector and and some of the financial transactions that uh, were impacted by this storm and what might be done to make that system less vulnerable. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health. 
with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, our guest today is Dr. Masood Amin. He's a senior member of IEEE, which is the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. They're an international organization. And um, if you'd like to check out more about this wonderful organization, I mean, they really are uh, the most trusted voice on such a wide variety of areas. And they're completely dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. Humanity, wonderful organization. Check out their website at www.ieee.org. Now, before the break, we were talking about some of the vulnerabilities that Superstorm Sandy, say that three times fast, um, has exposed in some of the uh, systems that we rely upon so much. Telecommunications was the system that we were talking about right before the break. But, you know, there was another situation that a lot of people ran into when the electricity went down, and that was kind of the cash conundrum where people couldn't make food or other purchases because the debit card or credit card systems that stores use to process those financial transactions had no electricity, and they couldn't process the transactions. And then to make matters worse, people couldn't get cash because banks were closed and ATM machines couldn't operate without electricity. So in less than two days' time, we were seeing pictures on the news of people who were hungry and thirsty and living just as poorly as some of the disaster-struck countries that we've seen on the news that are far less affluent than the U.S. And and in a very quick amount of time, our citizens were, were suffering in just the same way. Dr. Amin, what can we do to keep our financial transactions more energy secure? We can, uh, by enabling a smarter microgrid locally and having uh, some of them are going to be pretty much backup power at a local institution, similar to what telecom and server farms have done. Having that level of local generation that can support it would help. 
but also having a stronger backbone, stronger grid to provide alternative pathways to bring electricity in from the sources, from large sources that, that are typically away from population centers into the, into the cities and into where the banking is. So it's a combination of both local risk management and uh, uh, connection of the overall uh, local system to the, to the stronger and smarter backbone that can support it. Now, for those of us who are a little bit unfamiliar with the term microgrid, tell us what's involved with that. What are the parts and, and components that we might recognize if our community were to adopt a microgrid configuration? Microgrids are typically several neighborhoods. It can be one neighborhood. It can be a college campus. It can be small town. Or it can be one large city, but uh, several sub-microgrids within the large city that, uh, that would have local generation combined with building integrated sources. It can have uh, combined heat and power. You want to make basically the local system as energy efficient and as energy productive as possible. And they are connected. They can quickly isolate themselves from the, from the larger system when they see, and that connects to the smart grid and ability to have processors and smart chips uh, that sense power fluctuations quickly and can actually separate the, uh, separate the microgrid so that it doesn't have a blackout, and locally managing their demand, uh, managing what the load is uh, to the essential services that must run, matching them to the sources they have. And at times of surplus, they can sell back or transfer back electricity back to the larger grid. So it's a combination of, think of it, please, as a, as a local generation, local distribution with cybersecurity, with automation, with communication built in. Think of it as a naval ship with all the instrumentation that you have, and now you're connecting several naval ships together to power the, the whole city but not mm-hmm. at that level of sophistication. That would be too costly, but at the level we can afford. For some high-end electronics, high-end uh, so parts of the society, it may be very, very precise and can measure what's going on in the system several times per second to correct, to heal. Um, at the same time, uh, for areas that are not, for, a, for example, for a warehouse, we are not going to need that level of sophistication. It's just a question of keeping the temperature and light working. Mm-hmm. All of this falls under what I have called uh, self-healing grid, smart grid, that, that basically the architecture for that has the three layers, local, quick restoration, quick reconfiguration at the local level. There's a mid-level that is coordinating with other microgrids, and then there's a top level that can do more strategic forecasting, what's coming and, and what can be done. And we have shown since about 14 and a half years ago, we have applied that same design to several case studies and several practical projects, whether they're, they're Department of Defense bases, whether they're small cities. Close to my University of Minnesota, we have done it for a, an area called University of Minnesota Morris, 22 buildings is a microgrid. Hmm. 
Now, I think, you know, that whole idea of being a little bit more self-reliant and self-sufficient would appeal to a lot of neighborhoods or communities, even, you know, entire cities. However, when you get down to the generation piece, people might flinch a little bit because their the image in their mind might be, oh, wait, does that mean we have to have a coal plant downtown so that our city can be self-reliant or would our microgrid be uh you know powered by some other form of of power generation that you know people may not feel so comfortable with what are the options for generating power for a microgrid situations that you know most of the population might find palatable there is no cookie cutter solution that that would be uh, that that all have to follow it has to uniquely uh, meet or match what's available locally. And, and typically uh, that can be microgrids, depends on the location. Southern California would probably be solar panels, a lot of solar panels on top of the buildings, or even use of electric uh, plug-in electric vehicles as a small distributed generators mm-hmm. and storage devices. And in other parts of the country that have higher wind, it would be wind. But all of that during uh, adverse weather situations, weather conditions may not kick in. So we are going to need either natural gas or other sources, even uh, for some emergency, there may be other fuels that may be needed. So that type of work has to be done on a community-by-community basis and customized to make what makes sense in that community that would be minimum footprint on the environment, costs would would be much less than the benefits we are going to get and, and what it would basically develop and what would it bring to the community in terms of immediately reducing the risk and making it possible to, uh, to have foresight to reduce outages and minimize their length when they occur. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we've heard so much about the smart grid over the past few years, and, and I think a lot of everyday Americans are still trying to get their arms around what that means. But it sounds as though if communities were to decide, or like you said, neighborhoods or campuses or uh, perhaps uh, enterprises began to invest in this microgrid concept, that the Smart grid is something that could be developed sort of piecemeal. Is that true, or or do we need to have a national uh, plan, consensus, and investment to really get the smart grid up and going, or can it be done community by community, state by state? I would recommend both. And actually, when I first proposed smart grid in January of 98, that original presentation and the follow-on programs that we co-funded between EPRI and Department of Defense are online at at the website they have for me at the University of Minnesota. Basically, the smart grid, uh, two years ago, there was a survey, national survey of uh, public opinion. 68% of people surveyed had no idea what smart grid is. Actually, Mm -hmm. many thought it is just smart meters which is just uh, smart meters are a node at the customer end, and it's not the smart grid, which is the overlay of the whole system. Uh, it, we need really both, because we need an integrated approach, both at the local, uh, at the national, and perhaps intermediate at the regional level. Smart grid is the next generation of electric power system that uses digital technologies, such as computers, 
secure communication network, sensors, automation and control, as an overlay on the electric power grid, all the way from fuel source to end use, from basically think of it from the fuel source all the way to the household refrigerator or a piece of manufacturing equipment or a city's lighting fixtures, uh, to do the following, to enhance the reliability, increase system efficiency, reduce waste, if you will. Because currently, this end-to-end system efficiency, when we go from coal to old-style light bulbs, is only 1.6%. We waste 98.4% of uh, energy content in that system. Fortunately, the high-voltage transmission is 97% efficient. It's at the two ends that we lose most of that. We lose it at the generation side and at the end use, and we can improve that. We can waste a lot less and improve that. This, this overlay of smart, secure digital technologies that are added to the grid, retrofitted into it, are used to integrate uh, renewables as well and to enable a system that can be electronically controlled and dynamically configured. This provides flexibility and functionality and self-healing capabilities that we currently do not have at the level that we can have measurement of 10 to 20 times per second and closing that situational awareness gained by that measurement into automation and control. The smart grid is also very important to help Uh, deal with energy and environmental challenges and reduce carbon emissions. And uh, some of the, the, the areas we talked about combined with massive storage devices can increase the integration of wind and solar energy into the generation mix. Mm-hmm. So uh, in IEEE, uh, virtually every aspect of smart grid has been worked on, is being worked on. Engineers in academia, government, private industry have been working on it. I have the privilege of serving as the chairman of IEEE Smart Grid Newsletter. It's a monthly newsletter. It's free. It's available to the, to the general public, and we have a very large group of subscribers that sign up, and every month they get four concise 800-word pieces in it. So this, uh, uh, the whole Smart Grid can help the following. Can a self-healing grid could help uh, a number of benefits to make the system more resilient and stable. Uh, three of its primary functions are, number one, real-time monitoring and reaction, which allows the system to constantly tune itself to an optimal state. The second characteristic would be anticipation that enables the system to automatically and proactively look for problems that could trigger larger disturbances. And finally, the third capability is rapid isolation that allows the system to isolate parts that experience failure from the rest of the system to avoid the systemic failure and spread of disruption. And in doing so, it enables a more rapid restoration. Well, and I think that, you know, a storm like Sandy and seeing millions and millions of people at the mercy of what essentially is a, um, you know, failure of our infrastructure um, it is bound to spark more interest in this idea of, of 
improving our infrastructure. I think that, you know, a lot of people, you know, we, we're so driven by political campaigns and what's important, uh, is what we see in political ads. And we just got through with a huge political, you know, season here. And, the last thing that any politician is going to run on is elect me and I will upgrade your water infrastructure and your energy infrastructure. It's just not a sexy topic. And so therefore, you know, it just doesn't make it into a lot of people's, um, the forefront of their mind when they're deciding who are we going to elect and what will the community priorities be, whether that community is city council or, uh, you know, state or, or federal. But I think it's high time that we go beyond the, the sound bites of the political season and get into some of the things that our elected officials um, need to be concentrating on. And that is, of course, infrastructure. Some of it is so old, um, <laughs> it wasn't even meant to last quite this long. We see that a lot in, in our water infrastructure as well. You know, one of the things I can't help but think about, and you've kind of alluded to it a bit, Dr. Amin, is that it's not just a natural disaster that can bring our uh, energy infrastructure to its knees. Um, there are other threats to our energy infrastructure. And we hear uh, every once in a while somebody on the news will say something about a convention of people who are talking about cyber attacks to our energy grid. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that and give us some idea of how big that threat is that these hackers pose to our energy infrastructure and how the U.S. can better protect itself um, against these types of cyber attacks to our energy supply? Certainly. I will be delighted to. Uh, so to put it in perspective on the physical side, uh, to, 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 you know, to echo, Jill, what you mentioned, on the physical side, even if we take out all the extreme events, extreme weather, all these major catastrophes, if we take those out, the outages in the U.S., uh, just because of aging infrastructure for the most part. Uh, how, uh, we have quantified that. In the Midwest, uh, the most reliable part of the grid is the upper Midwest and the two Canadian provinces we are connected to. Uh, we experience 92 minutes of outage per customer per year, even if you exclude all ice storms and adverse weather conditions. The most, um, uh, the highest number of outages is unfortunately in the Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, New York, that experience about 214 minutes of outages per customer per year. And that's the aging old infrastructure, basically, and also tight coupling between parts of the system that when a disturbance occurs, it, it propagates really fast. Japan, in contrast, when using the same metric, we remove all the extreme conditions, extreme weather, Japan averages only four minutes of interrupted service per customer per year. Hmm. So that's the aging part. Now, with the, with the cyber and with the advent of more sophisticated attacks on the system or potential for such attacks on the system, the spectrum of threat keeps increasing. And unfortunately, we are often fighting the last war and that's what also policymakers and planners often think about. What, is, what was the risk beforehand? And rather than proactively, and it's hard also to justify, as if it's an insurance policy, against future threat when the future threat has never happened before. So mm -hmm. it's the bias of the hindsight. 
On the physical side, we have a system that is continental scale, although there are sub-regions within that. There are four major sub-grids in North America. But absolute defense is impossible. So the question is, what are the critical nodes, uh, what are the critical parts that we need to protect, and what measure of protection do we put in there? The second part, which is cyber, the threats from cyberspace have been increasing and evolving. And while there have been no publicly known major power disruption due to cyber attacks to date that are widespread, public disclosure of some of the vulnerabilities are making such systems even more attractive. Uh, to give you an idea uh, on the non-sensitive side of that, there is sophisticated nature and speed of some of the malicious code or intrusions or denial of service attack, they are so fast that human response will not be adequate. More than 90% of documented successful intrusions and cyber attacks take advantage of known vulnerabilities or misconfigured systems or servers and network devices. And as we move ahead, the cyber threats are becoming more and more dynamic, evolving quickly and often combined with a lack of training and awareness, uh, on the, on the, especially on the smaller or mid-sized organizations. My concern is not so much the control centers. They have top-notch, outstanding, up-to-date uh, training. And uh, concern is smaller ones. And because we are connected, smaller ones connect to larger ones and so on. The cyber connectivity has increased the complexity of the control system automation and facilities is intended to reliably control. So to defend it also, there is a jurisdiction. Who has jurisdiction over what that we can talk about later? Is it federal? Is it local? And that's another challenge um, in that. So, But we can. The good news is that wireless and public Internet that have increased the vulnerability. We have uh, been uh, asking uh, before 9-11, after 9-11, and since the last 11 years since then, to avoid those and have mandate security for advanced metering infrastructure, protection against personnel profiling, guaranteeing customer data privacy, having real-time remote surveillance of who is getting into the system and why they are there and trying to block those. So there is a lot of work that has been done, yet more remains to be done because this is a very ripe and fast-evolving area. You know, it. it I, I can't help but think because I have three kids who are, you know, teenagers at this point. Well, my oldest is, is not a teenager anymore. But um, this sounds so cool. So 21st century, uh, like this would be a field that would really interest um, young people. And I'm wondering, are we seeing them go into this type of work? Do we have the requisite workforce to deal with these challenges? Or we, do we need to be recruiting uh, more more students to go into this field? Absolutely. Excellent question. Since I'm in the area of also education, I'm a professor at the University of Minnesota. Uh, five, actually, when I joined the University of Minnesota in 2003, uh, we had a major uh, road mapping of what are the needs locally, Minnesota, and nationally. And security technologies became number one. 
So I had the privilege of creating a Master of Science in Security Technologies, and uh, I'm pleased to report that it has been very successful. There is a shortage just in cyber, shortage of about 60,000 cyber uh, security professionals by 2015 in our nation. And uh, uh, we can retool and retrain our best and brightest, and based on the best talent, to help rebuild the critical infrastructure. Uh, I'm pleased to report that some of them are veterans of the armed forces, some of them are math majors, computer science, engineering, double E's, and some are folks with sociology, political science. We take them in, they're bright, they have average about nine years of work experience. Some of them are younger. and. They emerge from, many of them, the veterans emerge from service with maturity and years of advanced training. And uh, when they go into this uh, Master of Science in Security Technologies, they do very well uh, because mm -hmm. it helps them to shape analytical risk management, innovation in this area, whether it's cyber, whether it's food safety, whether it's biosecurity, whether it's critical infrastructure. They help create and develop and implement these types of security measures, if both the depth that they have in cyber, bio, food, critical, as well as systems view and ability to bring uh, the designs to real-world situation. So That's this is so a very important area. Well, and for those, you know, who are looking for relevant jobs and, and employment opportunities, this is about as cool as it gets and about as relevant to the 21st century needs um, across a variety of industries as it gets. Uh, Dr. Amin, I could talk to you all day long, and unfortunately, we've reached the end of our hour, but we'll have to have you on again to talk some more about the Smart Grid, but we thank you for joining us on Go Green Radio. Thanks to all of our listeners for being with us as well. I hope you all have a great week and do something in your life to go green. Thank you. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.